Last week we began talking about the Apostle Peter, First and Second Peter, his letters to the church as he tries to express himself. And some of the things that we notice about Peter is, um, just to review if you weren't here last week, one of the things about Peter that's very important that we understand is that Peter is not a theologian. He is not sitting around trying to systemize and to plan out and to strategize. Um, Peter is an old fisherman. He, is, he probably grew up very, very minimal education. And Jesus grabs him uh, and he grabs Simon, son of Jonah, and he says to him, you are going to be my little rock. Um, and the, the Greek word petros, the Aramaic word kephos, um, and he just says, you're going to be a little rock. You're going to be a part of a bigger rock. And one of the reasons we named the, the, series, the series on him, Living Stone, is because of what he means by that. And, and this is one of those phrases, if you, if you don't know what's going on, um, it, it's an interesting phrase. You really think about it, living stone. What does that mean? You know, stones don't live. Um, what it means is if you, if you were to go to Israel, you would see that most of the, ro- most of the stone buildings in Israel are made of limestone. Um, well, limestone is used for building material because it's very easy to cut and, and mold into a shape. Um, but, but in an environment where it only rains for a couple of weeks, a couple of times a year, and when it rains, it is a torrential downpour. Um, limestone is very, uh, uh, it dissolves quickly. I'm trying to think of the word for it. And if I was a geologist, I would know, but I don't. So um, uh, limestone changes. And as a result, things in the limestone, the, the, the look of limestone will change from time to time, especially living like limestone out in the wild. Now I suddenly have images of herds of limestone running by. Look at that wild limestone. Um, but the, but as, there, as the, limestone, the limestone and caves and things like that, they change based on how water is there. And so when we talk about living rock, you're talking about rock, that's what they're describing, living stone. They're talking about how it's, it's not inert. It's, it's constantly involved. There's something different. And, and so he's a living stone. He is, Peter evolves. He, his faith changes from the time as a, as a um, probably late 30s, early 40s uh, man who is called by Jesus uh, to, to be one of his disciples and one of his apostles from that time where, where Peter's middle name might as well be foot in mouth um, to, to the time that Peter writes the, the, the letters of First and Second Peter, he has grown and he has matured and he is reflecting back on his past and he is reflecting back on who Christ is and who the church is. And it's really extraordinary. It's very easy to see uh, Peter's uh, crucial role in the formation of the church, who he is and and what he does and how he's involved. And so I want to look at 1 Peter chapter 1. If you, have a bio, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the racks in front of you. The page number is in the bulletin. And we're really just going to take a few minutes and talk about the first 12 verses of the first letter that Peter writes to the church. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion into Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tests, that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Father, as we go to your word, and once again we look at the words of of Simon Peter as your Holy Spirit inspired him to write, to speak to us, Uh, across the ages. Lord, we ask that you would help us to see his heart, to know what he was um, emphasizing and, and, and bringing to the forefront. That we might be encouraged by this man who, who Jesus chose to be a shepherd and an apostle. Who Jesus chose to be the leader of the disciples and the apostles. Who we've seen we see in the book of Acts revealed to be an agent in your hand, an instrument of your grace and gospel. Pray that we would bring glory to you as we look to the words that you have given to us and that in these written words we might see the living word, Jesus Christ. In his name, amen. Peter, Peter hits on something that's, that's core to who we are as Christians. And, and so I, I want to I just spend a little bit of time talking about a basic doctrine, a basic teaching of the church. Um, in fact, we might say the basic teaching of the church. And that is the Trinity. Now, when we, we pull the word Trinity out, we have to be careful not to charge the word with more meaning than what it has. When the word was first coined as a term by Tertullian, who was a second century bishop and pastor, um, it meant something very simple. Infinity is the characteristic of being infinite, right? All right. Unity is the characteristic of being one. Trinity is the characteristic of threeness. That's all it means. We, we tend to charge it with a lot of theological terminology. And if you, if you are visited by a certain group who likes to knock on your door on, on Saturday mornings, they will say to you, are you a Christian? And you may say, yes. So you say, they, will say, they will ask you a question about the Trinity. Um, this particular group will ask you, they will say, do you know that the Trinity is not found where? 
in the scriptures. The Trinity is not in the Bible. First of all, they're wrong. But secondly, um, the reality is the word Trinity does not appear in the Bible. You know why? There was no call to call anything a threeness. But that doesn't mean it isn't in the scriptures. In fact, it's all over the scriptures. You need to understand this, just about particularly the Jehovah's Witnesses, this group that will ask you these questions. You need to understand where their doctrine and belief came from. In the 16 and 1700s, there was a large movement in Christianity known as Unitarianism. And the Unitarians, now today we have Unitarian Universalists. That's, that's a different thing. It's not the same thing. Um, but the Unitarians, who eventually became that group, the Unitarians believed there must be one God. Because the Bible says, all right, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, I, the Lord God, am one God, all right? And so they said, well, there's one God, and there must be one God. And therefore, when you come to the scriptures with a single statement, without reading the Bible as a whole, you come to the scriptures with one single idea. Guess what you're going to see everywhere in in the scriptures? You're going to see your single idea. You are going to see your concept in the scriptures. And so you're going to then read it in. This is what is called, um, this is, uh, we call, uh, when we, we study the scriptures, we call it uh, exposition or exegesis. Um, this is, uh, exegesis means to draw out. Eisegesis means to put in. This is called eisegesis. We, we take something we believe and we put it into the Bible. And people do this all the time. You have to be really, really careful that you don't do this. But the Unitarians took this idea and they said, well, there must be one God and, and therefore Christians for 1,800 years were wrong and we're going to change the whole thing because this is what we believe. Now, where this comes from is the idea that if I can't fit it in my head, it's not true. Uh, called rationalism. So, so if I can't figure it out in my mind, it must not be true. And so, um, let me ask you a question. If that is your core idea, who's really in charge? Me. I'm in charge. And you have to accept what fits in my head, whether you can fit it into your head or not, because, you know, I'm smarter than you. That's, that's really what this argument is all about. And so the argument was, there's one God, and I can't figure out how one God could be three, therefore we chuck the whole thing, and we become Unitarian. That's, that was a doctrinal position. It's not the same thing as a Unitarian church today. You need to make sure there's a distinction. This is a doctrinal uh, thing. They generally are Unitarians, but it's a different thing. Um, then, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and many other groups, there are a lot of groups that have these different views, they they then took this idea and they read it into the Bible. They created an interpretational matrix and they said, this is how we read the Bible. And it's very confusing. It's very, very easy for them to get you sidetracked on this because they spent a lot of time on it. So I want to talk about the Trinity this morning because it comes under challenge a lot. Now, it comes under challenge from cult groups and things, but it also comes under challenge from just popular media. Every year around Christmas and Easter, who tends to be on the cover of major magazines? Jesus. And what are they always talking about? They're always talking about the historical Jesus. All right, they're, they're gonna, we want to know the Jesus of history, not the Jesus of the Bible. And I hate to break it to them, but the only history we have about Jesus is from the Bible. Right? It's not like there were other people, you know, there was uh, Peter's, uh, Peter's second cousin Rufus, 
writing a different version of the story that, that doesn't exist. All right? So what they mean is, we come to the Bible believing that Jesus is not God, and we reinterpret the Bible that way. It's the same problem. So I want to talk about this. Look at the first couple of verses of what Peter says. This is written around the year 65 A.D., a lifetime from the time that Jesus was, resurrect, was resurrected. Jesus died around 30, 30, 28, 35 A.D., somewhere in that neighborhood. We don't know exactly. This is written before, um, uh, during the persecutions of Nero, so it's somewhere around 60 to 65 A.D. Look at what he says in verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. Those, if you devote your life to scripture, studying the scripture, this is called a Trinitarian formula. They exist all over the place in the Bible. I'll show you another one. Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is called a Trinitarian formula. If you look at the New Testament, you will see over and over and over. And I could give you a couple others. Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 13. The Trinitarian formulas are all over the place. And you know what they are? They are the early believers trying to explain something that they've encountered. And that is that as they have seen Jesus revealed... They have recognized, and if you were with us for the study of Hebrews, you know that this is very, very true in the book of Hebrews. They have recognized that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. And they're trying to sort out how it works. And the way they choose to do that is to not try to figure out how it works. They simply introduce these Trinitarian formulas. They simply say, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And they're good with that. They don't sit there and go, so how, how do these work? How does this fit together? What, what part is the Father? What part is the Son? What part is the Spirit? They simply say, they just throw it, they say, Father, Son, Spirit. They stick them out there and they just leave it there. And believe it or not, that was enough. That was enough. For Simon Peter, it is simply enough to assert Father, Son, Spirit. That's all he needs to do. And he's okay with that. But over time, people started to, to bring into the church questions of ph philosophy and tried to figure out how this worked. And as they did that, they tried to say, okay, so how do Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work together? Well, you know, one guy said, well, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work together because uh, my personal favorite, what's called modalism, God put on different masks so the God of the Old Testament revealed himself as Jehovah. I am Jehovah, fear me, fire, flame, brimstone, the whole deal. But then in the New Testament, he changes his mind. He goes, no, I'm Jesus. I'm loving a hippie, long hair, sundial behind my head, white robe, Swedish. That's me. 
All right? Um, and then at other times, he reveals himself as the Holy Spirit, ethereal and non-existent, you know, and all these things. But it's really just masks. He's really just one, one nebulous being, and you can't really understand his nature, so he puts on masks. That was their, that's their belief. Well, of course, the, the church fathers all got together and went, that's silly. And they rejected that. Then there was um, a guy by the name of Arius uh, teaching in Egypt and then in uh, Assyria. And Arius said, well, the way that it works is the God, the Father, he's eternal. He's, he's one. He's all there is. Um, but somewhere along the line, before there was time, and let's not pretend and quibble on details, he created the Son. And he's a little less than God. He's still way, way more than us, but he's a little less than God. So to us, he looks like he's God, but he's not really God. And they all got together. My personal favorite moment of all of church history, the Council of Nicaea, they all get together to discuss Arius. St. Nicholas, you know, Santa Claus, hat, the whole thing. All right, St. Nicholas got so furious with, with Arius, he walked over and punched him in the face. This is how we resolved issues in the fourth century. All right, fisticuffs. The churches, church business meetings have not changed. All right, so, um, but they all said, no, that's not it. And there were all kinds of people that came up with different equations. And they said, well, you know, they struggled with the idea of, well, how Jesus is God. Is he, is he fully God or did he become God or, or did God make him God? And was he fully a man? And some people said, well, Jesus wasn't really a man. He was a ghost. He just appeared like, like in Christmas Carol. Um, you know, and, and everybody thought he was real, but he wasn't really real. And, and when people touched him, they weren't really touching him. They only thought he was, they thought they were touching him, but they weren't really touching him. And that starts to sound like the Matrix. Um, and there was just all this stuff that was going on. And the church said, we've got to do something. We've got to come up with a way to explain this. And it's important that we understand this about doctrine. The way that doctrine works is not that it says this is the absolute certain way that we understand this idea. For, for Peter, it was fine to simply say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As all of these, these what are called heterodox or her- heretical positions started to exert a pressure on the doctrine, doctrine had to push out and say, no, it's not. No, it's not that. No, it's not this. this is, it is not this. And doctrine serves a purpose of protecting the church from false ideas. Now, this is, this is one of the issues, the, one of the problems we have with, with doctrine. Doctrine does not necessarily say, this is absolutely the way it is. Doctrine says, this is absolutely the way it is not. That's what orthodoxy is. When we, we recite the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, all right, and, we, and we don't do it a whole lot, but when we do it, you need to understand that what the church was trying to do was saying, we are not this. We desire the simplicity of Peter's confession. Peter simply says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ. And if you go through the Bible, you'll see the three of them get sorted in all kinds of different orders. There's no like specific set way that they're listed. Um, in fact, how do we usually say it? We usually say Father, Son, and Spirit, right? You notice what Peter does? Father, Spirit, Son. All right. So there's these different the different 
ideas, but it's a simple statement. It's a simple statement. Why? Because this is the core of who we are. The Father, somehow a person, desires that mankind be restored to him. The Son, somehow a person, but also the same as the Father, works that and makes that happen. The Spirit, also a person, but somehow the same preserves and holds and controls and guides and inspires that we might see those other things. You say, so what are you trying to say? I'm trying to say something about God that we will never understand. When we try to fit God into our parameters and our boundaries and our ideas of what he should be, we immediately start to tilt toward heresy. You say, well, isn't that kind of lazy to not have a rational explanation? No. Why would there be a rational explanation for the existence of a being that exceeds and supersedes all that there is who became flesh, died and raised from the dead on his own? There's like eight or nine irrational things right in that statement I just made. God is not a computer program. God is not binary. He is utterly and completely unique. And here's the amazing thing about it. As Peter made the realization of who God was and who his relationship was, look in verse 11, right? This still boggles my mind. He's talking about the prophets of the Old Testament. And he says, verse 10, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. You see what Peter realized? You see what Peter realized there? He realized that his best friend, who he had lived with, slept around campfires with, the guy who took a room in Peter's house Jesus lived in Peter's house. Somehow or another was speaking to the prophets hundreds of years before he had lived. Now I found out secrets about my best friends. That's a mind blower right there. Peter realized that the person he had known as Jesus, who was entirely Jesus, yet somehow was also the God of the Old Testament. The spirit that had moved the prophets. This is wild. He's okay with it. He's okay with it. Now, it probably took him decades to get to this point, okay? So I'm not saying you should just be okay with this. But the reality is, as Peter matured and grew, he came to understand the person that he had known 
as something bigger than he could ever understand or comprehend. And he simply accepted Christ as Christ was revealed to him. And I think sometimes we could learn a real lesson from Peter. I think sometimes Peter gets a bad rap. Um, And this has a lot of reasons that it could happen, but I think we need to hear Peter's voice. Peter doesn't come into a theological explanation. He just says, you know what I realized? I realized that the one I called friend was the Messiah, Christ. And that Christ, his voice has been heard through all time. The prophets from Adam all the way to Zechariah, the, the, from Abel to Zechariah, they, they heard the voice of my friend Jesus. And he has revealed something special in us, a grace that they could not understand. We have an opportunity to know and to live and to experience the mystery that is a relationship with God. You really, really want to irritate somebody who asks you a, a theological, doctrinal question. Like, you know, well, you know, Trinity is not in the Bible, blah, blah, blah. Just say to them, I don't put God in a box. It will irritate them to no end. I don't put God in a box. Or my other personal favorite is to do this. It's a mystery. People really hate it when you do that. You know, now my dad, when he would say, who put shaving cream all over the kitchen? And I went, it's a mystery. That didn't go over so well. But did you know that mystery is actually a core idea in relating to God? The Apostle Paul uses the word all the time. He says, this is a mystery. So I don't know how it works. And look, if Paul doesn't understand how it works, you and I are not going to figure it out. But we simply accept it. We simply walk with it. We stop trying to rationalize what is revealed. We say, well, that, that doesn't work for me. I, I like to understand everything. I like to make sure it fits. I like to make sure that all my ducks are in a row and that my religion is easily quantifiable so that I can make sure I am doing the right things, saying the right things, and believing the right things. At all times, it fits in my system. There was a people like that in Jesus' time. Called the Pharisees. They had worked God down into a box. They had him in a system. They had a plan for him. And you know what the reality is? He doesn't fit in our box. Somehow Peter came to understand one of the core things about the church and that is that the church and its relationship with Christ and God is a mystery. And I think we could all benefit from a little more mystery in our lives. We could all benefit from taking some moments in our lives and saying, I don't understand what you're doing, God. And I'm okay with that. Now, how do we usually say, I don't understand what you're doing, God? I don't understand! Help me understand! But what if we simply said, I don't understand, but I trust you? You know, the, the classic, I'm going to close with this, the classic thing about everything about heaven is, you know, go to the pearly gates and you meet Peter, Right? 
The reason for this, by the way, is that Jesus said to Peter, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. And so medieval people came up with this idea that G- Peter must be standing at the door of heaven. All right? That's, that's because he's got the key. You know? So you get to heaven. It's not, you know, Peter standing there with a register going, you can go in, you can't go in. Their, their imagery was Peter had a key. And you would come and you would say, I followed Christ my entire life. And Peter would look at his list and consult it, make sure. And he would unlock the door and let you in and then close the door behind you. Whoa, 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 you. Next person on the list. That was, that was where that came from. Um, but you know what I do know? is when Peter went to heaven, somebody else was standing to greet him. And that someone else was the one that he recognized, Christ. And you know what? If Peter's life, if he could embrace the mystery that is Christ, I hope and pray that I can too. And I can go through my life devoted to him, even when he is incomprehensible to me. And that I can wade through the difficulties and the tribulations without saying, God, why, God, why, God, why, God, why? But in knowing and embracing the mystery of faith, I can journey with him, who I do not understand, to a goal that I probably am not seeing for his praise and glory. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you, first I want to thank you. I want to thank you that your way is not mine. I would have chosen a different path. I would have chosen a way that would serve me. I am incapable of seeing even a fraction of what you can see. So Father, thank you that you chose your way. Although I don't always understand. And Jesus, I have no idea what to make of the way you are. I am confused more often than I understand as I see you revealed in scriptures. Thank you that you call us into your mystery. Call us into a glory that we cannot fit into our imagination. That we can stand back and simply proclaim you as you are. Holy Spirit, you work in us as you have worked for all of human history. We know you less, we can predict less about you than we know about the wind. You, you were the, the breath of God on the chaos of creation. You are the, the breath of life in the darkness of death. You are illuminating light. You are transforming power. You are renewal and revival. 
You are resurrection. And yet we know really nothing. Help us to give our lives to this faith. That even as we cannot define you, you define us. Pray this in Jesus' name.